Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. I'm Ricardo Sierra. I'm really excited to talk with you today. I'm with Emily Woodmansey. Is that the right way to say it? You got it. You sure did. Great. You're the founding director of the Bluestone Nature School, and you are also a forest school trainer, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah. Founding director of Bluestone Nature School. And I would consider the distinction as a a nature-based education trainer. Certainly there are certified and qualified forest school trainers. And what I do is slightly different, but still incredible and wonderful work. And I love it. Absolutely. One of the things I'm actually interested in talking with you is all, all about the idea around like some of these different trainings and certifications and how it goes. But for now, let's just jump in to see you're in Pennsylvania, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm in Northeast Pennsylvania in Pike County. So I'm actually right across what we now call the Delaware River from Port Jervis, New York, last stop on 84. And yeah, it's actually a really lovely, very wooded area. And our our town is Shahola, Pennsylvania. We actually are, are nearby town, Milford, Pennsylvania. We are home to the home of Gifford Pinchot. It's a very conservation-minded, outdoorsy area, lots of wonderful trails. So it feels like a really natural place to have a nature program and offer some nature school classes. Yeah, that's beautiful. I remember driving to Tom Brown's school in South Jersey, and I would, from where I live, driving there, we would, I would drive along there and go through Milford and then wind my way down. Uh, And I always loved coming over the coming over those mountains and seeing the river there and the, I think it's Delaware water gap. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. The Delaware water gap. And then winding down into that little town. And I just love that area. Sorry. I don't want to gush. Oh no, gosh. I could gush over it too. It's, (laughs) It's beautiful. I have goodness, 10 waterfalls within a 15-minute drive of my house. Oh, and that's so nice. Yeah, so much public land. It's a really lovely area to live. I, I actually grew up a couple hours west of where I'm at now in Pennsylvania. These woods, are they feel very much like home to me. I grew up looking for salamanders under logs and going camping with my family in Pennsylvania State Parks. So it's nice to come back here after I spent a number of years living in New England. And yeah, it just, it feels good to be back here and doing what I love back here. Yeah. And you were in New Hampshire. Did you go up there for school? Was that what you ended up heading up that I way? Or? Did. I did. Yeah. I went up to attend University of New Hampshire and who doesn't fall in love with New England? I, I couldn't help it. I Stayed around there for probably close to 12 years. I lived in New England and I spent time in New Hampshire and Maine. I worked for a number of of different programs up there, including some early learning centers. So Mm -hmm. I, I worked at Live and Learn Early Learning Center in Lee, New Hampshire, which is a nature based childcare program. And so they serve infants through a school age program. And I was really lucky there. I was the school naturalist. So I got to take all the infants out and I got to work with the school age kids. That was really a a pretty pivotal point in my career is 
doing those wide age ranges, figuring out problem solving winter gear and winter transportation with infants and <laughs> figuring out how to align what I was doing with school standards for the school age kids. A lot of juggling probably and switching hats like back and forth, I would imagine. Very much so. Yeah. But it was really great working for that program. And I feel like my experience just got a big boost. I was really able to do a lot of things that kind of brought me to where I am today. So I'm really grateful right. for my time there. Yeah. It's not, it's always interesting, like those formative experiences. For me, I learned with Tom Brown, a lot of mm -hmm. my wilderness skills, and then I slid into being a camp counselor and being asked by the director, oh, you'd be so great with the kids. You should do it. And then getting sucked into that world and those first early years are just really fun because you're trying to figure it all out. And yeah, that's pretty, it's always fun to think back to those days. It is. And I always share with people, especially new to, or just beginning to explore nature-based education educators that I got my start actually at a wildlife center working in their education program. So I was taking non-releasable hawks and owls and falcons and porcupines into schools. And I was teaching people about your local wildlife. And it was a fantastic opportunity. Who doesn't want to hold an owl on their hand? <laughs> know, right? Everyone does. So I really just saw, I was seeing these kids once a year and that was it for an hour. And I was teaching them about the wildlife in their backyard and I just knew there was so much more that could mm -hmm. be done. And I just saw the power of connecting children to their place and the place with a capital P, like where, yeah. where they come from, who they're going to see in their backyard, where is their nearest body of water, where's the water in their faucet coming from, all of these big ideas that I didn't see being taught in school, or, or I didn't see the connection for most of the children. And so I just knew that there was something bigger out there that I could be doing and something that would offer a deeper connection mm -hmm. and get kids outside more. So I did end up finding my way to more quote unquote nature-based education sure. and fell in love. Similar to you sliding into your role as a camp counselor, I, I just found my niche in nature-based education. And it was so similar to what I remember growing up and mm -hmm. playing outside and, and having the freedom to play and roam and explore and uh, being able to give that to kids and help other teachers give that to kids. Uh, it just, it feels so right. And I wouldn't want to do anything else. I really right. wouldn't. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a really wonderful path, especially if you can find the right niche. It's if you can find your niche and you can find a way to get paid enough to be able to survive and to be able to figure it out. And then to know that you're in the right place where people care about what you're doing and the whole works. It's really a wonderful thing to do and to see it all evolve. So tell me a little bit about some of your other experiences. Right? Cause I know you've worked at a lot of different kinds of places and I'm, I'm curious what your progression was a little bit from there. Sure. So as I mentioned, I, I really got my start in the general outdoor wildlife nature field at a wildlife center. And then I bebopped around to different organizations. I, I ended up going back to school to finish my bachelor's degree. And during that time, I was working with that early learning center I mentioned. Mm -hmm. But I also worked for Seacoast Science Center in Rye, New Hampshire. 
that was it was a chance to stretch my scientist muscles to get involved with citizen science projects and connect families to citizen science. But I also, I I ran a program there called Big Fish, Little Fish. And goodness, I I still think about Big Fish, Little Fish and the families that were involved with it. It was a, a parent and child or caregiver and child program along the rocky shore of New Hampshire. And we would just go outside together and we'd play and we'd discover and just seeing how much the students who participated, when they would start, they might feel a little unsure, or they might focus more on kind of the materials and the manipulatives playing. And then as class would go on, you'd see them kind of playing with loose parts or exploring the natural environment on their own. And you'd see just how much they became comfortable with this idea of free child-led play in nature. And it was fantastic to see. And I, I do credit Live and Learn with a lot of my professional growth, but Seco Science Center is, is right there with it. I was able to kind of mold that program in a way that felt good to me, but still met the mission of the center. So that was a really lovely experience. And then I also, all around the same time period, I worked for Coyote Club, which is a more of a wilderness-based after-school program for local elementary school students. So I had the joy of taking out the kindergartners at a local elementary school after school. And that was more focused on earth skills, nature connection. We did use Coyote's Guide as a a big model for the program. There was a lot of, there was a lot of animal form play. We do games with animal forms. And for me, I'd had a lot of experience. I I knew my nature neighborhood. I knew child development. I felt really comfortable being outside with kids, but earth skills and the coyote mentorship was relatively new to me at that time. So I, I fell in love very quickly with this model of the art of questioning and, and how do I draw out inquiry and build curiosity just with what I'm saying when a kid approaches me with a cool nature notice. So that that was a really lovely program to work for. And yeah, I, I spent maybe two years working for them. And this was all a time when I was back to school and I was bouncing around to a few different programs. And I did end up settling into my role at Live and Learn Early Learning Center before I before I moved back to Pennsylvania, which happened actually, goodness, less than a year into the pandemic. My husband and I moved here. And upon moving here, I I didn't have anything lined up. I had lightly started my own business back in New Hampshire. I was running a a YouTube channel for the families who went to live and learn and and wanted to do more nature time after, after the closure of the school for the pandemic. And that surprisingly took off a little bit. I had families from all over the world watching me do these little nature experiences on YouTube. Yeah, so I I turned that almost into a a business when I moved here and started offering what I love to do. I, I started doing homeschool programs for kids. I worked with our local public library and I would offer library programs for the summer reading or just throughout the year. And that really gave me a little bit of community down here in a place that I was brand new to and and didn't really know anyone, which eventually led me to finding some community at a local school. I I ended up being their outdoor education faculty at a a small um, Montessori school in New York. 
And I was there for a little while before I had my daughter. And then, goodness, after having my daughter, I did take a little bit of a break. I was (laughs) really busy. A little break, but I was working for a, a really just fantastic organization, Eastern Region Association of Forest and Nature Schools. I was the professional development coordinator, later to become the the PD director. While I was growing and then raising my daughter, I was able to still do what I love, just behind a computer. I was teaching teachers how to do this work and supporting the organization's mission, which was near and dear to my heart of ultimately connecting every child with a chance to learn and play outdoors. And the majority of that work was really building connections with other educators, teaching them exactly the best practices in nature-based education, how to form a daily rhythm, how to follow follow child-led play and the outdoors. So it was exactly what I had been doing for the majority of my career. And now I just got a chance to share it with other people. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Now that I'm saying it all, it, it just it does feel like a lot and a wide breadth of of things, but I I think really what it comes down to is doing this work in different ways with different organizations has really brought me to, to feel comfortable in what I'm doing and to really feel good about being able to offer a high quality experience for children and their families that I know is helping them form deep, deep roots to their nature neighborhood and where they live. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, it's interesting because for me to listen, when I listen to you talking about this, you're saying like, I've got infants, I've got infants and their family, I've got children and their families. And like a lot of people that I think have learned some of the like earth skills, the people that are the earth skills crowd Mm -hmm. of folks, oftentimes they're working with little older children. And I remember doing programs where we'd say, oh, the parents are going to be here and they would go, "Uh oh, what do we do? These parents are going to be watching us. And they felt really self-conscious. Like they they felt really free when they had a bunch of 10-year-olds and they're running down by the creek or doing whatever. And all of a sudden with those parents there, they didn't really know how to interact with them because they were obviously like y- younger than the parents or 10 years younger sometimes or, or sure. five or six years younger. And they were like, well, what, what do we do if they're doing something that they shouldn't do? And I was just like, just tell them to stop. I said, it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> but it was, it's really interesting because every time we, every time we shift and do a different population, like we were saying before about all the hats you wear, you re- everything kind of shifts a, like in a significant way. It's not just a little thing. It's, it sounded like, oh yeah, I worked with this. I worked with this. I worked with this. It's not really like that as some of it's the same, but at the same time, you really almost have to shift to into a different place inside yourself to suddenly be like, oh, I'm going to teach some teachers how to do this versus I'm going to take some kindergarten kids and finger paint with mud and do something like it's a really, you really have a special gift in being able to shift like that because not everyone can do what you're doing. you. Yeah, it feels special to do it. And you're so right. I I know I I at least speak for myself, but I know a lot of educators, I think I can speak for them in saying that, goodness, I was just about to say it's so easy to be outside with kids. And it it is, it is so easy and fun to be outside with kids. It's also hard. It's challenging and it's hard, but it is so easy and fun. And then you do, you add that extra element of a caregiver being there or 
maybe you're having a, a day where an educator is shadowing you to learn how to run their own program. And there is that added element and you're having to shift. You're having to do what you do best. You're outside with kids, but you're also modeling and yeah. you're demonstrating how how do I handle this situation when a child walks up to me with something cool they found and they are excited about it and they want to know more? I don't want to squash that. I want to join them in their enthusiasm. I'm excited. I want to tell them what I know about it, but how do I bottle that back in and join them in their curiosity, propel them through their curiosity instead of just ending it right there with a didactic response? And yeah, how do I model that to the parents, the caregivers, the other adults who are there or any number of situations? How do I turn that hat on while I still have my silly, playful outside with kids hat on? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's tricky. It really is. And so our program, Bluestone Nature School, we started this fall and goodness, to be perfectly honest, a couple of the families who attended my play group that I started after... I think I started around my, when my daughter turned one, I felt comfortable jumping back into working with kids outside. And so I just started a really relaxed play group in my backyard. And a few of those families approached more intentional program for their students. And mm-hmm. that conversation came to me in February of this year. And we launched school in September. So yeah. Six months or so, we made a school happen. And because it was a pretty quick turnaround, I have, we consider her an assistant teacher up until, gosh, probably a month before we really started. That was up in the air. Point to all of that is we needed parent volunteers during our school day. So every single day at school, we have one of our parents or, or a caregiver come and volunteer. I really feel strongly There's so much value in connecting children with the outdoors, and I want to raise and teach a generation of kids that, gosh, what's the statistic? There's some statistic about children know 10 or 20 fast food and commercial logos, but they don't know 10 leaves from the trees in their own backyard. I want to flip the switch on that, and I feel very strongly (laughs) about that, but it's not necessarily going to happen if we're not doing it with the families too, we need that family involvement. We need this to be a community that's centered in raising kids outdoors. And and that means the parents and the caregivers need to be part of it. That's part of what I consider my role as the director and the teacher at Bluestone is not just giving those kids the experience, but giving the adults the experience and letting them play outside, giving adults the chance to play and helping them see. That's true. I mean, yeah. what they're saying it is really true. And it's interesting about that. I don't want to say it's a meme because it's not really a meme, but but that post about the corporate logos versus local yeah. plants and birds. It's interesting about that because I say, I don't see Dandelion ponying up like $2 million to do a TV <laughs> campaign. It's not going to come on, Dandelions. I don't see red foxes getting together and doing a fundraiser <laughs> to be able to get out in front of everybody. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. And I'm always a big fan too whenever I... Whenever somebody posts something like that and they find it, because I follow so many forest educators, it's like every single person shares it. And that's all I see all day for three days. And I'm just like, (laughs) oh, God, you guys, this isn't the... 
This isn't the concept that's going to change everything for you, but hey, whatever. There's always one of those things. They go through cycles of things coming up. Yeah, I hear you. It's funny. It's funny too, because yeah, you just, you know, sometimes you just see something and it really strikes you, but then it's another level of how do you do it? And you're doing the actual hard work of doing it. And that's the thing that is the difference. And yeah, that's true. So, so I was going to ask you, like, what did that feel? What does it feel like for you? Or what did it feel like for you when you went from being an educator, working with these younger children to suddenly being like, oh, I'm in a, I'm in a classroom in the, at a school and there's these teachers and they're looking to you to share stuff. Did you feel a little bit like, oh, and was, did you get resistance from some teachers or pushback or were there people that were like, yeah, whatever, dazzle me, Emily, or <laughs> I'm not going out there and getting poison ivy. So you can't push me. Like how did, yeah. that, how did that go for yeah. you? Imposter syndrome is real. I'll tell you that you're faced with people who want to do what you do. And all of a sudden you feel like, am I really the person to teach you this? Do I really I... know what I'm talking about? But then yeah. I think you just start, you start sharing what you do and For me, a big part of it, and it might sound overly simplified, is being excited about it and sharing that excitement with other people. It's what I do with kids, and it's what I do with grownups when I teach them. It's hard to have someone in front of you who's excited about something to not get even a little bit excited or interested at least. But there are definitely experiences where I received pushback or just a strong stomp of the foot. I'm not going outside. It's not my thing. I don't want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And kids are the same, right? You've got kids who don't want to go outside. And I've found that everybody has something. Everybody has something that is interesting or will draw them out enough to get them to want to go outside and to want to stay outside. And and you just got to do the work to find that thing for each person. Right. Um, Sometimes it's bringing them something to see. Sometimes it's asking them enough questions that you figure out what it is. But yeah, everybody has that thing. And I I can say, I think pretty confidently, I'm tracing back in my memory as much as I can quickly that every teacher I've worked with, every teacher I've worked with has found something. They may not be the most outdoorsy person after we're done and goodness, they may never take their students outside. Cause I don't sure. know. Um, sure, Who knows? Yeah. You don't always but get they found something yeah. in the moment, you know, they found something they liked and something that that's interested good. them enough to get them involved. So. Hey, I consider that's awesome. that job done. That's a win. That's a win. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's something interesting about working with schools and going into a private school and how that feels, or you go into a, public school or you go into an after school program like they they each have their community uh, of people and I know when I would go into an after school program the the educators there were just like oh thank gosh Ricardo's here take the kids <laughs> they're going to have a great time and I can just relax and be sane for 5 minutes and just and just take that back seat a little bit and it, it always seemed to feel really good and then a lot of the teachers also seem to in in an actual school appreciate that but i didn't i haven't really done a lot of teaching teachers how to do it and that's a different kind of a story so it's, i'm yeah. really glad that you're doing that kind of work because it what seems like there's a real interest and a real need 
as we know, that's great. Yeah, especially when you talk about getting into public schools, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or private schools is especially when you get up to those older ages, the demands of a public school teacher to even think about adding transitioning my students outside, figuring out how to do my lessons outside, how to manage them, how to keep them safe. That's a lot to ask a a public teacher or a private school teacher to take on. And I think for a lot of them, Eastern Region Association of Forest and Nature Schools, IRAFANS for short, part of their mission includes running community-based initiatives. And part of that is a, a forest days program in Title I elementary schools in Philadelphia, in Baltimore, and then there was one in Falls Church, Virginia as well. And I did not personally facilitate those. I I helped coordinate them and helped train the facilitators. But part of that is teachers who view it as that time to take a breath, right? Like you said, time to sit back. Okay, the Forest Days people are here. I can breathe. I can relax. And I do think it's it is important for our public school and private school teachers to have that moment to breathe. And I'm sure it feels like a big relief after such busy days. But part of that program, the the model was also teacher professional development. It was direct experience for students and teacher professional development. And it, it can be really, like we were saying before, it can be challenging to get teachers to step outside their comfort zone Teachers, like any adults, may have some fears around the outdoors. It may just feel too overwhelming, the thought of going outside. But yeah, we, it's nice to give teachers that moment to breathe and relax. But I think, too, if we can help educators feel even just a little bit comfortable, maybe it's just bringing nature inside their classroom. Maybe that's where they feel the most comfortable The more that we can offer opportunities for educators to get their students outside, to bring nature in, whatever it looks like to them, and do it in a way that feels comfortable, the students are just going to benefit from it, right? Right. There's no no downside in my book. And it it does take a lot of time, and, and you have to move slowly, especially with educators who maybe are a little less sure of the outdoors. But like I said, I think in my experience, everyone gets there eventually. Yeah, that's always the way I always thought of it, just even when I would run programs. And my philosophy was always like a challenge by choice. A student who didn't want to, I don't know, make a fire or carve a spoon or do something like that, they could just hang out and not do it. And then usually at the end or 10 minutes before the program's over, they're like, I changed my mind. I want to make a spoon. And you're like, oh, please, you got to be kidding me, man. (laughs) Like, but it was, it would be fun to just see them like exercise their decision-making and then decide that they do and they can do it next time. There's this idea of some teachers might want to wait and say, Hey, three months from now, they're going to be in the teacher's lounge. And the other teachers are saying, Oh my gosh, look at all these results. We're getting these positive outcomes. My students are getting these benefits. I have less problems here. And then that might turn around and go, maybe I ought to look into that because now they're they're finding their reason. Like everybody has a different reason to want to do pretty much anything. And so some people want it because they're like, it's good for the children and it's better. So I'll do it. And someone else might go, hey, this will actually make my life easier. And it's a way down the road as well. But it's, yeah, it takes time. Everybody gets there at their own pace, like you said. So 
Yeah. Right. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. And it's the same. It's the same with families, too. It's, you know, anytime you're building community outside, you just have to let people approach it and do it at their own pace. And right. Every everybody finds something, but it's just a matter of when and what. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. A hundred percent. So I'm mean, just curious, like what kinds of things are, did you uh, do with the uh, Eastern Regional Association, et cetera? I, how, how would, uh, what, what kind of courses did you, did they run there and what kind of things did you take part in or, or were developing? Sure. So Irafans, I'll, I'll maybe start at the beginning of, of my sure. experience with Irafans. So I for, first found out about them. I, I took the nature-based teacher certification level one course in 2018. It was actually the first time that the organization offered the course and it gives you a foundation in nature-based education. It covers everything from daily rhythm, risk management. You, you learn some earth skills in that course as well. So I took this course where five days in in Baltimore learning together outside and I fell in love with the organization it was what I had been doing plus a lot more new and exciting things and for me in particular with ear fans the community of people who came together to learn and, and grow together really just fantastic wonderful people that were just excited about learning with kids outside. I actually ended up joining the board of EarFans. It is a 501c3 nonprofit. And I sat on the board for a couple of years until the pandemic hit. And I was living in Pennsylvania, running my own program. And Monica Weedle-Lubinski, the executive director, reached out to see if I would help facilitate the online version of the level one nature-based teacher certification course, which I, of course, was thrilled to do. So I started out running that course with Irafans. And then because of the growth that Irafans saw with online courses, I was able to be the, the professional development coordinator. And that job really, I did as many things as I possibly could with Irafans. I coordinated and led custom professional development for schools. So public schools, private childcare centers, any program could reach out to EARFANS to schedule a customized, private, either virtual or in-person professional development workshop. So I would help them get the right workshop. I would sometimes lead them. And then we also had a suite of online content that we would offer from monthly free webinars, which are still offered by EARFANS, to different series like the Outdoor Preschool Teacher Series, which met monthly. really just a, a range of virtual prof- professional development that whether you were beginning or an experienced nature-based educator, you were going to find value in it. Then Irafans Goodness has so many wonderful programs to offer. Really the core being that nature-based teacher certification course, which there's a level one, two, and three. I'm certified up to level three and I'm actually now facilitating the level three course. Nice. Earfans couldn't get rid of me. I had to stick around for as much as I possibly could while I was running a school. Yeah, I'm pretty um, sure they weren't trying to get rid of you, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, they really weren't, but I, I let them know they definitely weren't getting rid of me. That's good. That's good. Yeah. And yeah. then they do live events too. So outdoor teacher retreats. There's something called the Natural Wonder Summit. There's 
it, it's really just giving teachers as many opportunities to learn together in community and to enhance their practice as nature-based teachers. Yeah, yeah. Are, are most of the people taking those courses, are they already teachers usually and they're just wanting to add or are they, is it a mix? Sometimes it might be like a mom who's my kids are going to be, I want my kids to get outside and I'd like to start my own little mini forest school. Can I get something going or is it like a, a, a big range? What would you say? I'd say probably predominantly teachers and educators, but we definitely would see, yeah, moms who are starting their own program or people who are doing a complete career switch, just starting yes. to get into education, informal educator, non-formal educators. So environmental educators, science center people. Yeah. But a, a large majority being childcare up to school age educators. Right. right. So people who might like say run a daycare for five years or 10 years and they go, Hey, I'm going to get trained in this to be able to expand my, what I offer and add to that. You or, got it. Yeah. Yeah, that's really, um, yeah. that's really great. It feels like that's, that to me, it seems like just looking as an outsider, I never really got trained in early childhood. Like mm -hmm. Tom Brown doesn't offer anything like that. He's sure. more of a, he's more of a get out in the woods and run around at midnight <laughs> or, or go tracking for seven hours straight or something. Yeah. But, but the idea that I always have been looking at when I see, I, the more I learn about the forest school movement and in general, these early childhood educational programs in nature, I'm really seeing it feels like we're about to have a moment, if you will, where all of a sudden these schools are, are going to suddenly go, hey, we need training. We need, we want to know, we want to do this. How do we do it? And the thing that kind of worries me, and I, this is one of the reasons why I'm really excited to talk to you, mm. it kind of worries me because I'm thinking like, if we have a moment and, or a period of time where that there is that demand, are we in a position to have these trainings at capacity? Like at a, if 30 million people, uh, kids are going to be getting this stuff, do we have the ability to teach and train teachers and coach schools through the process and and do that. And that's, I was just like, I'm, I'm not trying to worry just to worry, but yeah. I'm thinking about it. And I was also thinking, do we have an understanding of what the value of those programs are? So that what I've seen is that a lot of times schools will, local schools will reach out to an educator like myself and they'll go, Hey, could you do something? And usually it's not my main thing that I do. So sure. I don't really know how to price it. And so oftentimes I'll be like, I'll throw this out as a possible thing without really realizing like, hey, this is a, I'm coming in as a professional offering something right. really serious. And if we want it to be like a program that's still around in 10 years, we have to make sure that it's funded right in the right way. And, and if a lot of people are like nickel and diming it on one side and then others are charging a lot of money on the other. I was like, we need right. to make sure we're all unified in terms of what is the value of that to go. And I, so these are like questions that I've been trying to kick around. And I was like thinking just, sorry, you happen to no. be the person that have no. doing training and I'm just going, yeah, this is really interesting to me. So I'm so glad actually that you brought that up because it is something it's something that I've thought of. And I think a lot of other people in the field of nature-based professional development are thinking about, and it's so I am with you. I think 
the pandemic only showed us just how valuable being outside is. And there are more and more early learning, childcare, preschool, mm-hmm. pre-K programs popping up that are either starting nature-based or becoming nature-based. And I, I think it's only a matter of time before it really aggressively starts trickling into our, our public yeah. and private elementary schools. But there is, we need to have teachers who are qualified and trained because this is, it is a professional field. And I think it's so easy to, especially for early childhood educators, to toss around the term babysitter, to to behave and act the service that daycares and family childcare centers and preschools and pre-Ks are providing is not a a high quality professional field, but instead it's just babysitting. It's easy to critique that from yeah. somebody on the out on the other side. They could look yeah. and say, and they could look and say, yeah, aren't you guys just goofing around outside? That's there's what what's that's not valuable. Why am I paying X number of dollars for that? And then on the flip side of it, I also know that I've personally heard of summer camps where they said, Oh, we hired a couple of educators to do earth skills at our camps. And those whoever they hired did something crazy, picked up a rattlesnake and was showing the kids and got bit or just were doing things that were a little bit too Mm -hmm. far for that group. And then it like soured it for that director. And they're like, I'll never hire one of those crazy yahoos again. And because they, and unfortunately they hired someone who they thought would really be able to do this thing, but they were just a little too young. They were, they didn't have that Mm -hmm. professional depth of understanding that they're representing all of us. Right. And all of us. Yeah. And that's that's exactly why there needs to be these high quality training institutions that can offer, I hate to say the word standardized, but there's nothing else coming to my mind, but a a certain standard of training for nature-based teachers because, and especially, you know, nature-based education as a whole is relatively new to the United States and it's not accepted the way that Waldorf and Reggio Emilia and Montessori, you have programs like that across the country and nobody says, hey, is this Montessori program? Are they doing good things? Is it legit? Or are they just... There are probably kids. still people doing that, but they're, they're, they're not, probably not as much. you don't hear it as much though. Yes, that's true. You hear it a lot with nature-based education. At least I do. Yes, we need a, a, a standard that we can hold everyone up to. There's so much risk involved yeah. with taking kids outside. You might have someone who grabs a rattlesnake or even just educators understanding what is a developmentally appropriate risk for a child to take. How can I support that risk? And where do I where do I need to step in because it's turned into a hazard? Right. Yeah. yeah so- and being able to have control of the group in a way that they can, you can steer them in the right way and mm-hmm. not take them through a bunch of tall grass and have every kid have 400 ticks on them, right. little baby t- seed ticks and have parents freak out. And now the can- program's canceled. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's like, sometimes I hear when I do interviews with people, they're just like, it's so great. And it's so fun. And we did this and it's so great. And they just went on and on. And I'm like, okay, I know what it's like to run stuff with kids. It's not always that great because you're no. like stressed out and kids and go, yeah, I don't know if we should be doing this or, and there's just so much that goes into really running something that can be a sustainable, strong program with those yeah. values. And man, I've trained a lot of, of camp counselors and there are just are a lot of them that I'm just thinking back on it and going, yeah, you have to put your foot down. Like you have to really mentor them. You can't just go, yeah. Hey, they're excited about tracking. They'll be fine. That's not okay. 
when you're dealing with 16 parents, kids, you know, that they love. Oh, I, in early on in my career of, of finally starting to teach other people, I, I had some camp counselors. I wrongfully assumed that these teenagers would know, hey, if you're going to do a nature pee with kids, you got to make sure they know what poison ivy is. You got to yes. make sure they have toilet paper. I had a group of kids who nature peed and ended up wiping with poison ivy. And Ooh, man, yeah. you know, that's not me. I wrongfully <laughs> assumed that situation would be handled correctly. And yeah, so, you know, there's got to be a standard where everybody knows the risks, everybody knows how to handle the situations. And yeah. When I was about 19, I went into the California Conservation Corps and they have a month long boot camp that they do mm -hmm. because they train you to clear trails, to fight fires, to do flood wow. control, um, learn how about, learning about how to care for tools. There's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot of teaching that they did. And it was just this really, it was a really useful thing to have this like boot camp kind of experience for me. Not just because I needed to learn the rules, so to speak, yeah. but also to create an identity of we are the California Conservation Corps. We are going to get the job done. Their motto was hard work, low pay, miserable conditions. And that was their <laughs> motto. And they basically said, "You, unless you learn to love and thrive under that motto, you're not going to make it. And people, yeah. would get, people would get fired every week. You'd say, oh, four people left because there are people that just couldn't cut it. But every time somebody left, for whatever reason, it made the core stronger because they were like, mm. we're, we are going to make it through our first year or second year. Right. And there was an identity there that really gave us uh, like a, a lot of energy to be able to say, we're going to go into this community and we're going to build this trail and we're not going to take all day building it. We're going to go in there. We're going to cut brush. We're going to, we're just going to be really motivated and we're going to work the whole time and we're not yeah. going to feel sorry for ourselves because we have to work in driving rain or whatever. Right. And I just found that kind of, if I, when I really did my staff training and I treated it like that, my camps were fantastic. Mm -hmm. And when I just read through the handbook and talked about different scenarios, it was not the same. And so I'm, I've been really thinking a lot about training and what yeah. type of training do we need and what who's attending and what they feel like is helpful to them. So anyway, I'm just, I'm, I love that you're doing that kind of training and that they're doing that training and kind of piloting this. We're literally piloting this whole field yeah. independent of any kind of funding. You're not getting like a $2 billion grant to do anything. We're all self-funding it with like teacher salaries and whatever. So I'm just so impressed by the, the work everyone's doing. It's, it's really good, good stuff. And the, there's, a few, there's a few organizations out there doing it. Earfans offers amazing training. Yep. There's Cedar Song training, which I haven't done personally, but I've heard great things about. There's even bachelor program, bachelor's programs and graduate programs popping up. I've taken courses. I'm, I tell people that I'm, I am lightly working towards a master's and by lightly, I mean, at the pace of a, a mother snail who's on a walk with her toddler snails and she's walking at the pace of her toddler snails slow right. working through a master's program at Antioch University, New England. They have their nature-based 
That's certificate right. program. So yeah, it's becoming more and more common and there's more things out there, but again, bringing us back to this idea that we need to have some sort of best practice standardization of what are we teaching right. these teachers and is it going right. to be safe? Is it going to ruin the name of nature-based education right. in the United States <laughs> or even just well, in their state? Absolutely. I talked to Angela Hanscom last week oh, and, yeah. and she's been doing, she says she's doing a lot of work with developing research on mm. not just the effectiveness of the programs on the children, but also on the happiness of the teachers and oh, their great. job satisfaction. And she's like, what I love is that there are people building a really solid foundation for this. So it's really based on research. It's based on proven professionals stepping in so it so that we're hopefully joining a group of like-minded professionals who they're not just wanting to like, hey, I can run around with these kids and they'll do whatever I tell them. But, right. but someone that's saying, hey, I'm going to do this activity. And it's because I want to see if I can develop their whatever, their self-esteem or their wrist and arm strength or whatever, right. uh, opening their senses or whatever it is. And yeah, it's this is really great work that you're doing. And I'm really happy yeah. that you started your program. And yeah, it's great. Too. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I, everything will just keep, I hope everything will just keep growing in this mm -hmm. really positive way that continues to support children being outside in a way that's safe and beneficial and builds community. And there's a couple of, I was looking at my bookshelf above my head, we NAAEE National or North yep. American Association of Environmental Educators. I think it's them, or maybe it's Natural Start Alliance. No, it is NAAEE. So just happen to have these above uh -huh. my head, the preschool professional guidebook, and then the practitioner guide to assessing connection to nature. So there's there yeah, are things like this out here giving us the guide. Yeah, and Irafans, Antioch, Cedar Song, as long as these organizations continue to do the amazing work that they're doing, yeah, I think we'll see the nature-based movement continue to flourish. <laughs> I'm excited, happy. I'm excited to see where you go because I, I'm, I'm glad you. that yeah. we're inter interviewing you about this and getting a feel for just who's involved in all in the different types of trainings and getting your perspective. So this has been really wonderful. And so tell us just how would we get a hold of you? I'm, I'm going to have links sure. in, in our show notes, but I, in case someone's just listening and they want to look for you anywhere, are okay. you, I think you're on LinkedIn and a few other places. I, I am on LinkedIn, Emily Woodman C spelled wood man, S E E the, the program I run bluestone nature school it's actually run out of my LLC. So it's amongtheferns.com is our website. My email is director at bluestonenatureschool.com. Then you can also actually connect with me through EarFans. So I still maintain an email with that organization. So it's Emily, E-M-I-L-Y at EarFans. So that's the acronym, E-R-A-F-A-N-S.org. I'm on Facebook and Instagram as well, facebook.com backslash learn among the ferns. And the same with Instagram. The handle is learn among the ferns. Nice. Yeah. Nice. That's, that sounds like you're accessible. So that's great. And, and, I try um, to be. <laughs> yeah. Thank you again for doing this, for doing Thank that you. work you're doing. This Thank is you. great. Yeah. Oh, it was wonderful to talk to you. And, and I'm just glad to 
share a bit about what I do. And I know there's awesome people out there doing awesome things. So it's great to be among some cool people. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to today's episode and for all the things that you do to help build a world that is connected to nature. You can get access to the bonus episodes, my forest educator nature journals and curriculum, as well as other useful content by subscribing to my Patreon page where you can support us at any level. You can find the link in the show notes for that and my website and social media as well. And I will see you outside.